Hi, I'm Jessie, your host of the Jessie Williams podcast. I'm an entrepreneur and business mentor bringing you fun and thought-provoking conversations around money, wellness, business, life, and personal development. This is the space where humor meets depth and no topic is off limits. Let's fuck shit up. Oscar Ledlin, welcome back to the podcast. I feel like this could be potentially your third episode, which is exciting, and I am happy to be having a conversation that is a little bit more directed at you and your expertise and your knowledge when it comes to all things money, investing, business and property. But before we get into today's episode, I would love just for any of our listeners to get a bit more background context into you, who you are and what you do. Thank you, Jesse. Thanks for having me back on. I run a small commercial property development company. We specialise in providing luxury commercial spaces to a young entrepreneurial target market. I also run a construction company and I've recently started an alcohol company with four of my closest mates. That's cool. And something that you said in that was that with your commercial development, you focus on more of a young entrepreneur as a target market. Why do you feel like you focus on that target market? Is it for financial reasons? Is it for passion reasons? Why does that feel like your target market? Um, honestly, it's probably a little bit of both. I think it's something that just sort of progressed over time. It, the business didn't start that way, but probably with a mixture of my passion and my tastes, you mean, my target market essentially is the demographic that I myself fall into. So I think it was an evolution of the brand. And as I started taking the business in a direction that was more passion focused and less commercially focused in terms of the numbers and, and finances, I just naturally started inadvertently targeting that target market that has become now our pure focus. It's interesting because I feel like whether it's time, so whether it's years ago or maybe it's just perspective based, but I feel like a lot of people would probably be surprised to hear that as a commercial property developer that your target market is a young entrepreneur or or someone young in general because you usually typically years ago you would think about someone investing in commercial property property and you assume that you know you're going to someone that's more like whether they're older or they're more established and things like that but for you what's interesting is not only is that your target consumer but you sell your properties so incredibly easy What do you think has changed? Do you think it's just a perspective thing or do you think the industry actually has changed in that people are now investing earlier? I think it's both. The industry's definitely changed and we focus on the end consumer. So we don't focus on necessarily the investor. So while we have a lot of investor purchases, we're really focused on how the property is going to be used by the end user. So that might be the purchaser if they're purchasing to use it for their business, or it might not be. It might be a tenant who's going to be the end user and the investor that just stands in the way that becomes the landlord. They're just an inadvertent customer. But our our focus always remains on who's going to be using the property, who's going to be getting the most use of the property and how we can add value to them. And I think the market has changed both from that consumer point of view and the investor point of view. From the consumer point of view, I think digital marketing and e-commerce has really changed this market in the last 15 to 20 years, more so in the last five off the back of, you know, just pre-COVID and then especially off the back of COVID with the boom of e-commerce and then just in the last 10 years with the emergence of digital marketing, it's less important now for people to be, you know, 
mainstream presence and, and high-profile sites like that. And, and what really is important is how their business presents online because so much of our marketing is done online now. I think that's just allowed an innovation in the market where we target these people with properties that are aesthetically pleasing. They have to commercially make sense and they have to be you know very commercially functional because ultimately they're providing commercial use. But I think this changing market has allowed us to really focus in on aesthetic properties as well as commercially fun- commercially functional. And then the second part of that is the commercial investor. So the people that are buying these properties to then lease them out to a tenant who might be an e-commerce person. So your everyday could be a mum and dad, but our focus has been on younger and younger commercial property owners. And I'd say probably 70 to 80% of our purchases are first time commercial property purchases. And I would say almost, you know, 30, 40% of our clients are first time property purchases. So a lot of these people are buying commercial property as their first property purchase, which if you'd said that 10 years ago, even five years ago, that would just be extremely unusual for somebody's first property to be a commercial property. But more and more our clients are diving in with commercial before buying a residential. This is absolutely incredible to just hear. And I'd be curious to know your perspective on that. Again, do you think it's a a shift in the industry or do you think it's something that Ledlin are doing differently that's, um, you know, changing how people buy and things like that and what they're valuing in purchasing and investment decisions and things like that? Like, what do you think makes it that you guys so easily sell not only your properties, but that a lot of people that are getting their first commercial property or their first property in general, and they're purchasing through you guys? There might be a little bit of a shift in the wider market, but it's definitely not something that's been spoken about publicly in the media or anything like that. And, and I'm not too sure of that. I sort of get a little bit consumed in my own bubble and I, I get a little bit misled by what's happening immediately around our brand and and I don't want to sort of overlap that onto the entire wider market but with Ledlin I think just the way that we've positioned our brand we're really attracting our target market almost definitely predominantly but almost entirely you know we have almost entirely now attracted our perfect target consumer there's of course a few outliers that come in from whatever marketing channels they come in through but We've really honed in on on how we target our ideal client. And with that, yeah, we're just seeing so many younger purchases, so many first-time commercial property purchases and so many first-time property purchases. I'm not sure if it's because of how we're positioned our brand and the education piece that comes along the way or if it's more the services that we provide alongside just selling the property. You know, we get involved in leasing the property and releasing the property and the events and stuff that we do alongside that as well. I'm not sure if it's all of that or if it's just how our marketing has has become more refined. What do you think about your marketing has allowed you to attract the specific market you can? Because as your industry as a whole, you know, being in property, there's a certain clientele that you're typically going to attract, but you guys have done really, really well at somewhat niching that. And the people that you're drawing in who want to buy your properties are that younger demographic, that entrepreneurial energy. What do you credit, you know, in your marketing, in your advertising, in your messaging, that means that you're attracting that kind of buyer? I think transparency is probably the biggest thing. And it's not just from us, it's led by us, but it's not just from us. So, you know, we're very transparent about the entire process of 
how we design our properties, how we get through planning with our properties, the sales success of our properties, the leasing success of our properties. But then also our clients operate very transparently. And I think because we, somewhere along the line, we started attracting more of these young consumers and the way that they operate is incredible from a marketing point of view for us. Just inadvertently, you know, the the way these young entrepreneurs operate, a vast majority of them they live their lives very transparently, their business lives, some their personal lives as well. But, you know, almost all of them are living their business lives very transparently and they're inadvertently showcasing our properties while doing that. So whether it's, you know, an e-commerce business getting a stock delivery, you know, they go live on social media and talk about, look, here comes our new stock delivery. It's going to be sold this week, blah, blah, blah. All in the background of that is an incredible warehouse with polished concrete floors and a nice office with glass balustrade on the staircase and stuff like that. So we get a lot of what 20 years ago would have been referral clients, but it's really just now, oh, I've seen you on such and such a story or oh, I follow what's his name from this business and uh, I've seen the background, you know, the communities you're building and stuff like that. So we don't do any real paid brand brand work or, you know, our marketing is very limited. We do a little bit of advertising, of course, to particular channels, but we don't spend money on, on branding or marketing or anything like that because our clients really do it for us. This is a cool conversation that I am really glad that we've opened up because you'll know with me, I'm, I love all things personal brand and something like, and stuff like that. And I could be wrong here, but based off my assumption, I'm going to go ahead and say that majority of other property developers or whether that's residential, whether that's like commercial, typically the kind of audience that you would assume they're getting is someone that's ready to buy and they go out and they seek the purchase they're wanting to make. So they've decided they're ready to buy a home or they've decided they're ready to make a commercial property investment and they will go out and seek that. Whereas for you, something that I feel has been really, really interesting is where that script has almost been flipped in that I believe that you've potentially got people to buy a commercial that weren't seeking a commercial investment property. They didn't even know they wanted to buy, but they saw what you're doing and they watch you online or they've listened to a podcast you've been on and then they want to buy. So it's this really interesting thing where you're pulling in people who aren't already seeking the product. They only come to learn and want the product through the messaging first, which is really, really cool. So I feel as an observer, something that's allowed that to happen has been how well I believe that you do personal brand. And it's interesting because I would say that you somewhat don't even try. In in fact, I would say that you don't try. You just naturally have built a very, very um, incredible brand. What do you think around that in terms of how your personal brand has been able to leverage sales for Ledlin? Yeah, I think there's two, two real points that you focus on there. One is not attracting or, or not seeking out purchases that are ready to buy because you can definitely do that. And I think there's usually a financial cost that comes with that. It's about putting your brand in the eyes of people who are ready to take that next step. And with that comes a lot of paid advertising. There's a lot of cost that comes with that. And you don't necessarily leverage the benefit or the strength of your brand because you're hopping in front of people that want an object. They don't necessarily want that object from you. So we have played very much played the long game with that and a lot of our purchasers have known of us for years before they buy from us there's there's others that inadvertently seek out and they come in and you know we fall you know they almost fall in our lap type thing but our typical buyer has been watching what we're doing for a number of years and that allows us to build trust and I guess brand credibility among 
uh, this purchaser long before they even realize that they want to do business with us. And then the second part of that personal branding, I mean, I think transparency is the biggest thing to personal brand. Like there isn't anything that all strong personal brands have in common except for transparency in in my view. And you're like, you know how much I put into the personal brand work that I do and, and all it really is is not manipulating the outcome that I'm trying to showcase. So whether it's sales, whether it's uh, a win at work, whether it's something I'm struggling with at work, the the most high-performing high-performing in whatever way you want to measure it, but the most high-performing content that I produce is the stuff where I'm like, fuck, I'm just going to display this exactly as it is. And like, it's hard to do, right? Because we all care what people think about us and we all care more if we know that we're showing the most true version of ourselves. So like when you pull the makeup off and you don't curate the the environment exactly how you want to look at it, when you're just like, I'm just going to show it exactly how it is. You know, your heart races before you share that type of content. And I think in any industry... Um, with any person I think that's probably the key is just transparency yeah it's interesting because I feel like with a lot of people that are building a personal brand and whether it's you look at influencers or or whatever space they're in a lot of people go straight to quantity so it's very much about how often you're posting how often you're sharing you know be on your stories every day interact with your audience and sometimes it can almost be borderline emotional dumping where there can be a lot of things shared in the space that potentially their audience didn't need to know or didn't need to hear and something that you do incredible well is you've built such an incredibly strong personal brand and I would say you don't do the quantity thing you more do the quality thing so I've seen you sit down to write an Instagram post and and sometimes I can be shocked at how long it takes you and it's not because you're manipulating it because you're being thoughtful or you're being intentional or you know you're making sure there's transparency you're making sure there's value for the person reading it and things like that and again it's the intentionality piece I'd be really curious do you think that the transparency thing is what's allowed you to build such a such a big personal brand even though you're not doing mass quantity of content yeah, and I think sometimes these posts take me so long to do because they're more of a journaling practice than they are a personal branding practice. And like, I start writing down my thoughts and then I go deeper and deeper and I'm like, holy fuck, like I've just uncovered some shit there. And a lot of the stuff I don't post, not because I don't, you know, want to share it or anything like that. I just don't, it sometimes loses its value piece and it becomes something that's been more for me than it has to benefit anybody else. So, um, but yeah, I think transparency, it's, it's ultimately what's allowed me to, to build my personal brand. I think it's a lot easier when you're transparent as well. Like, you know, when you mentioned before, you're like, oh, somebody's asked an interesting question. Would you want to answer that? And I'm like, yeah, I, would, I want to answer that. And for a second, I'm like, how am I going to answer that? And then I was like, fuck, I'll just answer it truthfully. Like I answer anything. Because then you don't have to think about like, oh, did I stretch that? Or did I try and cover that up? Or should I fo- more focused on this? It's like, it's just so much easier when you just remove any overthinking of what you're talking about and just show it for what it is so yeah and and I mean in terms of like volume of content I would love I would love to do more with my personal brand but it just hasn't been that much of a focus and with my attention spread across a few other things um yeah I definitely don't you know I, I post probably maybe twice a month um in my Instagram feed and like stories sometimes I'll go a few days without posting a story and um it's just I haven't got the focus at the moment to continue building content but I think the content that I do share often resonates with people because it's not glamorous it's not 
prepared. It's not scripted. It's just like something that's happened during the day that I think might add value to people. So I share that as it is and, and it resonates. Mm. This is cool. So let's talk G up now, which is your new alcohol company that is in its very, very early days of being actually readily available to the market. And your first month launching, you launched in only, uh, you launched online and it was it only one initially or a couple of fixed stores in your first month? So we launched online and then a few weeks later, we launched in two local uh, retail stores and then since then we launched in six local retail stores and we fit that within a month yeah and would I be correct in saying that your first month of revenue was multiple six figures yeah yeah which is just absolutely phenomenal so obviously that's not just yours you're doing that with partners which is like super exciting so on that personal brand piece I'd be really curious to know do you feel that you would have had that result that success if you had have launched G up without any personal branding from any of the partners yeah I think from any of the partners is probably the key to that because my personal brand isn't isn't the strongest uh, among my partners and it's definitely not the strongest for this particular target market. Um, I have no doubt and I have reassurance from a lot of my audience that they have gone out and bought G-Up to support me, but it's definitely not my target market. It's, it's a bigger, broader market than that. I think, you know, it was funny when, when we launched, the boys and I went for dinner and I remember saying to them, you know, it, it took me 18 months to make six figures in the first business I started and it took us, I think, it was either six or eight minutes to do 100K. No, it might have been two minutes. I can't remember, but it was less than 10 minutes to do 100K in GF. And I was like, fuck, you know, the last 10 years of the effort that you put in and the experience that you build, it all sometimes comes down to one moment that reflects what you've learned and, and the value that you have gained from that. And I think the launch of GF was a real cool moment to look back and be like, fuck, you know, this is this is a return on my investment over the last 10 years. So that's... um. That was a really cool moment to see and it was really cool to share that with, you know, the four four guys that I'm probably closest with. Personal brand, it's an enormous part of this business and there's an opportunity with the guys that are involved, including myself, but I guess a culmination of the guys, some more than others, of course, with Troy and now Adrian involved. But it's a, it's a massive part of the brand and it's really what's going to start the brand or what has started the brand. I don't think it's what's going to carry the brand as far as I see the see it going but I think it's definitely the fire starter that kicks it off yeah the piece that you said around you know taking you 18 months to hit six figures in your first business and then you know under 10 minutes hitting it in your second it's interesting because as you know I've recently launched a company that I co-founded with my best friend Felicity and like it's so funny we have barely even been looking at the the numbers and things like that and I'm not sure but I know we're over six figures and I think we'll be on track to do seven in our first year um, of that company which is super exciting whereas for me it took me I don't know maybe four five years to hit my first million in a year which was super cool and then to know that you know I'll do that in one with Felicity and for me her frequency feels like an overflow company where 
you know, we're, while of course we want that business to be profitable and things like that, we're not really so much focused on taking out of that company. It's We're not relying on that to pay our bills or pay our wages or be able to get money. It's like we actually really want to utilize that as overflow where what we create from that either further supports our lifestyle or we can actually keep assets within the company. So utilizing what that company makes to buy property and things like that and keeping that within the company. I would love to hear Gia Obviously, you've been so invested in Leadland for a really, really long time and have so much connection to that that company. What does GUP feel like for you in terms of what really inspired you to pursue another company? Because that would be your third now. And what are you ultimately hoping to get from it from a tangible level, but also just from a personal level as well? Yeah, I think the decision to explore it as a business opportunity was really because of the people involved and I said for a fair way through the initial journey and when I say said I might have said it to you or I might have said it to myself that I'm involved in this business because I'm doing it with my mates it wasn't an opportunity to make money and it wasn't an industry that I saw myself being incredibly passionate about but then as the opportunity evolved there was other aspects that come into that and The first one was I found some passion for the industry. You know, the product that we created ended up becoming a very innovative product and I seen it as something that the industry could really use and I think that it could do a lot of good in the space. So that was something that I quickly became passionate about. And then the what became the third thing to, to really keep my focus in the business is the commercial opportunity. So I think first and foremost is like doing business with my mates. It's just been, it's just been a fucking lot of fun. Like um, since we launched, I've been working seven days. I've been emails till nine o'clock and phone calls over dinner, but it's with the boys. So it really doesn't feel like an additional workload. So that that's, that's probably like the thing that really piqued my interest at the start, but has also... Um, really kept me focused and and to be honest there was periods along the way where I thought it could be the biggest detriment to the business as well like there's some really challenging conversations that we had early on where I was like shit this might not be what it's what it's cracked up to be but I think we set some boundaries within the friendship and now like since those conversations like it's just been smooth sailing in terms of business relationships with with partners and then when we really focused in on like how we're going to make this product different and, and what could we do in this space yeah, it really ignited a passion in me for a space that I didn't think I had any passion left. You know, I'm not a big drinker myself and I'm not an advocate for too much drinking and stuff, but what we've done within this space and how we've positioned ourselves within the space, I'm like, yeah, this is something I definitely um, can see benefiting a lot of people. So it's definitely now a passion project as well. And then thirdly, once we sort of hit the ground, I realised that this is pretty substantial commercial opportunity and I love business so um, that's the third reason to to keep me in it. This is so cool and something that I actually admire in you is your ability to innovate and I would say I've always seen that in you and I've seen it across every single company is you know you doing things that have just never been done before so take us a little bit through that process in terms of for people that 
you know, maybe they're always have been doing things from a place of, but this is how it's always been done and this is the way you do things and this is how so-and-so does it. And they're maybe wanting to start tapping into a little bit more of that innovative energy. What's that process look like for you? Is it, you know, something where you sit down and innovate? Is it things that just come to you randomly? Is it both? Like, what does it look like for you to be tapped into innovation within your businesses? I think for me, it's not the idea. Like innovative ideas, we can think of a thousand. Like, you know, I just thought of one setting up this microphone before was a fucking pain in the ass. So like, why aren't there presets for a two-person podcast? Or why do we have this long stick thing hanging off the front of these? Like, why isn't it built into this? Like there's a thousand innovative ideas because the way the human species evolves, not physiologically, but just as a culture and our behaviours, there's just so much room for innovation. You know, podcast considerations weren't a thing 20 years ago because podcasts weren't around. So ideas aren't what's really difficult when it comes to innovation, in my my opinion. It's about executing that idea through to what can become, in a business conversation, a commercial opportunity. And I think... The biggest part of that for me is, and how it's been described to me in terms of reflected back to me, is like a tenacious uh, aptitude. You know, tenacity, I think, is like when you're innovating, you're just going to get so much resistance. It's just the way it's either the people around you or the framework of the laws around you. You know, every time you're trying to do something different, there's going to be 10,000 reasons why you shouldn't do it. And I think like... The biggest innovators are the people that can just keep moving forward against the opposition of whether it's ideas, whether it's legal framework, whether it's finances, uh, whether it's the consumer not understanding the product or service that you're trying to innovate in. And that's something where I've just been lucky that if I get an idea and I'm like, I want to do this, then I will. I just won't give up until it's done. And the idea sometimes has to change and it ends up looking completely different to what it first did in my head or in somebody else's head if, if somebody else has shared the idea with me. But I think the key takeaway is just keep, keep pushing until you've executed on that vision. This is cool. I would I would love to just also get your perspective in terms of you spoke earlier about, you know, how much you're working, you're back working seven days a week and things like that. And I think a lot of people would think, oh, but you're so established in business and you've got the solid finances now and you've got a team and you've got, you know, a cleaner and there's things set up in your life to support you to be able to maybe be less hands-on and things like that. But you've come into a new business and you've very much not come in from an entitled energy where you're expecting to just be able to, you know, get the multi six figures in a couple of minutes without putting in the work. You very much are still back in that meeting yourself as a beginner again. How do you feel that people potentially miss out on opportunities in growing their business because they're not willing to be in that beginner energy? And how has being in that beginner energy when it comes to business, do you feel that supported you? Yeah, I think like something really important to distinguish there when you say beginner energy is it's not thinking small. So like beginner energy for me and the way I interpret what you're saying is like being comfortable to pick up the broom and sweep the floors to make the calls and do the groundwork because in this business right now I'm you know, I've got that beginner energy, you know, I've had to reply to, not had to, I've been able to reply to DMs um, on Instagram because our social media manager can't keep up and I've had to proofread stuff going out where in a sense of somebody who's running businesses, you know, that are doing somewhere between 
60 and 70 million dollars a year revenue you would think that I'm not the type of person that's going to be proofreading and and doing those sort of that sort of work but I don't want that to be confused as you know playing it small because our plans for this business are pretty substantial and we have that what you might consider entitled mindset in that in that aspect you know people think to start a new business and make a million dollars a year would be you know incredible in my mind like if that happens with this business I would be like I'd be so disappointed in myself. I'd be so disappointed in my friends. You know, your brother said to me the other day, somebody said in reference to us, like they, they referenced a business that in esteem that was doing $16 million a year in revenue. And it was somebody we both love and this isn't bashing or anything like that. But he said that in the conversation after we were almost embarrassed that he would consider our business in the same framework as his other business that was doing $16 million a year. So the, the view that we have and the expectations that we have for this business is very entitled. And I think it's like, it's an earned entitlement in, in my point of view, you know, it's not, we're not dreamers or we're not, you know, caught up in our own fantasy or anything like that. We've put, you know, five reasonably successful business people in an emerging industry with significant financial backing. This business should do well. So I just, I don't want to be confused with having that beginner mindset is playing small because mm. we're definitely not playing small. It's not the beginner mindset. It's the beginner execution. Yeah. Yeah. And like, I don't want to get caught up on semantics of the language, but we're definitely not, we're not thinking small. We're thinking big, but yeah, I think any new business really to get it going. And this might be a bit more of my personal preferences or my personal aptitude over anything is you have to do the groundwork and um, somebody sent me a podcast recently that was talking about work ethic and it said your work ethic is really your output with leverage. So someone like Elon Musk, if he works four hours a day but he has 10,000 employees under him and the total output is X hundred million dollars or billion dollars of revenue, it's like he's a very productive person with you know great work ethic. And I think that is there's nothing more true than that but I think we get caught up in that and we don't want to do the groundwork. We don't want to sweep the floors and do what necessarily has to be done. And I'm the opposite to that. I probably do it for a little bit too long. I'll be sweeping the floors when I really should be in the office making more substantial decisions. But yeah, I think any startup needs that startup mentality and that startup energy. And we definitely have that with the boys. Mm, With that mentality piece, I'd be curious to hear you speak on what do you feel differentiates an employee mindset from an entrepreneur mindset? Like how do you feel that like someone that's always going to be an incredible employee, What, how are they moving and thinking and showing up within a business? And then those people that are gonna, going to be very, very successful in business and entrepreneurship, how are they moving and thinking differently? I mean, I think an incredibly incredible employee will be considering – how high they can perform within the framework that has just been described to them, whatever that is, whether it's creating a new product or working within a business. I think somebody who is, I don't want to say destined, but positioned to be an incredibly employee, when you describe some sort of opportunity to them, they will think how well they can perform within that opportunity. And I think an entrepreneur will consider how they can broaden the opportunity. So, I think there's just two different mindsets. One is how can I make the most of this? And the other is how can I make this more? 
Yeah, I feel like for something that I notice in even the coaching industry between people that, you know, are going to, let's just say, make it and those that don't is they never really fully transcend an employee mindset in terms of they almost think that being an entrepreneur means that you don't have to sweep the floors. It's like, I feel like people can very misconstrue that energy where it's like, it can sound, it just almost has this sound where it feels glamorous and luxurious and it's all the money without the work and you're just making the decisions and things like that. But I would say it's actually very much the opposite where people that are, you know, in entrepreneurship and are going to do well in it are actually willing to meet themselves where they're at. And kind of like you explained before, it's like when it's the mindset and the vision, it's extremely big. But when it comes to the execution, they're willing to be the beginner, start from the bottom and do whatever is required to make it work. Yeah, I was having a conversation with somebody the other day and they're an employee and I've got no doubt that they have the capabilities to be self-employed if they made some shifts in their mindset and and these shifts could take them six months or it might take them 30 years it's largely dependent on how much how much action they want to take. But I was talking to them about having they want to have more output and they want to do more. And I said, "Oh, are you working Saturdays?" And they said, "Oh, you know, I'm happy to work Saturdays, but I'm only happy to work Saturdays on the bigger things." I'm like, "What do you mean the bigger things?" And you're like, "You know, the things that are going to have bigger impact on the week and the bigger decisions." And essentially, they were saying they work Saturdays if the Saturdays is going to be the glamorous shit. And I didn't push it too much with them because it was a casual conversation and I didn't want to go too deep. But, you know, the shit I'm doing on a Saturday or a Sunday isn't necessarily... I'm not having glamorous meetings in fucking bars on a Saturday and calling that work. You know, I'm not having... I'm not doing the glamorous shit on a Saturday. If there's glamorous shit to be done, I'll do it anytime. And it's the same with if there's, you know, the less glamorous stuff. I'll, I'll sweep the floors on a Saturday. I'll do emails on a Saturday. I'll respond to messages on a Saturday. I think the difference between an entrepreneur and employee is was very reflected in that conversation with, with that employee. Is there anything that you can think of top of mind, and, and I know there'll be many, when it comes to you that people might be surprised to hear that you still do within any of your companies, so whether it is G-Up, whether it's within Ledland, um, you know, build or the development side of things, if people heard that you still do that for your business, do you think they would be surprised to hear that? Six months ago, there would have been a thousand things, but I think like there's been not a restructure, but there's been a focus in the immediate six months because the emergence of G-Up and the anticipation of how that was going to go, I was like, I really have to do some work on putting more systems in place, being able to delegate and freeing up some of my time for higher value tasks. Six months ago, there would have been a string of things. Now, I think it's just, it's more demeanor than it is any one particular task. And like, there'll be tasks that fall into that. But, you know, I'll spend my Saturday afternoons walking through site and just without any particular agenda for what I'm going to find or what I'm going to fix, I'm just taking time to pick things up as I walk around and and notice different, oh, we could have designed this different or why is that beam so thick? We could have re-engineered that, engineered that and saved 300 grand or just little things that come to you. And I think that's about allowing yourself time and space to to be able to have those innovative thoughts or creative space, um, which often I think the most innovative and creative thoughts come when you're in the monotonous, you know, doing the monotonous work. So, yeah, I mean, I remember we spent a Sunday afternoon, that must have been probably six months ago, where I was on the shovel down 
um, at our Springvale project because there was no one else around that could do it and it was something that was going to delay the project, you know, two or three days if we couldn't get it done. So I spent three hours or two or three hours on the shovel on a Sunday afternoon, ended up with blisters because my hands aren't what they used to be. And, yeah, I, I definitely... I probably could have found someone else to do that. I probably could have left it. It wasn't going to impact me too much for the next few days, but it's more of that just whatever it takes mentality. I love that. And it's a cool conversation that I wanted to bring on the podcast because I feel like with the rise of, you know, social media and a lot of online businesses and things like that, you know, people are seeing a lot of the outcome in terms of specifically money and, you know, the the end thing. And I think people these days, and, and not to generalize it, but I would say there has been somewhat of a shift that people are expecting that they don't need to work as hard. And there's truth to that of like, we are so blessed and, and privileged to be able to earn money a lot easier than what we could have you know 20 30 40 years ago but I think like not taking that so far that we lose sight of being willing to pick up the shovel which is which is really cool but I want to shift the conversation now because something that you and I obviously do and you got me very into however many years ago (laughs) whether it was I I don't know four five years ago rent vesting so we live in a beautiful home a very, very beautiful home in a very beautiful suburb and we rent here, yet I have, as of recently, just bought my first commercial investment property. You own, I wouldn't even know how many you own right now. Can you please talk through to the audience your take on rent vesting, so choosing to rent where you live and invest elsewhere and why you wouldn't look at buying the home you live in as a good investment? Yeah, I mean, this is a two-hour conversation with so many different avenues of discussion, but I think what it really comes down to is just statistically or by chance, where you want to live and the ideal place for you to live isn't the ideal investment for you. I think that's like the most condensed and simplest explanation is where you should live and where you should invest by chance, those aren't going to be the exact same house. Of all the houses and suburbs and states and price ranges and bedrooms and apartments and townhouses and backyards and of all the different living opportunities and then of all the different investment opportunities from $1,000 to $100 million to bank leverage to non-bank leverage to commercial property, residential property to Bitcoin, crypto, number plates term deposits, all the different investment opportunities in the world, the chances are that the exact one house is the best criteria of both where you should live and where you should invest. Statistically, it's not going to happen. I think that's the simplest description. But to, to break it out a little bit more, I think, you know, we've had so much pressure as a generation and I think the generations before us probably haven't had it even more and maybe the generations after us won't have it as much but we grow up with people telling us that you've got to buy your home you just you know work hard save money sacrifice and buy your home and if you ask the people that are telling you that why you should do that I think the answers that you will get will be so unfounded and so generic and so non-evidently supported that the question just becomes redundant. But I think like where we live shouldn't have the same considerations as where we invest. So, you know, take us, for instance. We first moved in together in, I don't know what year it was, but I was 25, I think. And 
the house that we could have afforded at that time from an investment point of view might not have suited us from a living point of view, but just say it did and we, we bought a house. Well, the house that we rented, I think, had recently sold for about a million bucks and then 12 months later or 18 months later, we were ready to move again and you know, due to the career success that we were having, or probably more so myself at that point we're having, we were ready for a different house. And if we had purchased our first house, the inefficiencies of having to sell and then buy again, it's just financially, it just, it's devastating. You know, every time you buy a house, you pay stamp duty. If you're in in Victoria, you pay somewhere between, you know, three for the cheapest houses and five and a half for the more expensive. So if you're buying a million dollar house, which is the average house in Melbourne, you're paying 55 grand just in stamp duty when you buy it. Like that's a big one-off fee. And then when you sell it again, you're paying, you might be paying one, one and a half, maybe 2% if you get ripped on a agent to sell that house. So if you're selling it for a million, there's another 20 grand. So the house really has to move almost a hundred grand in value before you even make a dollar. And that's without considering, you know, when you rent, you don't have to pay the outgoings of the house. When you own the house, you've got to pay for, you know, maintenance, council rates, land tax, um, all these sort of additional expenses. So, yeah, I, I don't know which way you want to take the conversation, but, like, I think sometimes it's easy to answer a question by asking the opposing question is, like, why should you own your home? Like, I think there's fewer reasons you should own your home than the reasons that you shouldn't. And I'm happy to talk about the reasons that you should, but I think there's only a few of them anyway. Yeah, I feel like a a big one for me, and this is interesting because even let's use my car as an example as well. Like let's talk about asset liability kind of conversation. It's like with my car, I could have bought that in cash and I chose not to. So I chose to get a loan and, you know, go on a payment plan or whatever for, for that car. And the reason that I chose that personally was it made no sense for me to have a lump sum of cash sitting in in a car that's driving around making me no money. It's actually losing money. Whereas for me, I was like, okay, cool. I can just put a smaller amount down on that car, go on a payment plan. And now with that cash that I have available, I can put that into an investment that's actually making me money. So for me, it always makes sense from a cash perspective to not have, you know, things tied up in something that's potentially costing me money or I'm losing money on it. Sometimes a house you're not necessarily losing. Well, sometimes you are. And then making, you know, more profitable investment decisions and things like that, which for me, that feels really, really good. But I'd be curious to know on on that conversation in terms of, let's go down to a common thing that always gets put to someone that's renting. And it's, why would you rent you're just paying off someone else's mortgage. That's a, a common phrase that's throwing around in terms of if you're renting, you're paying down someone's mortgage when you could be paying down your own. What's your thoughts around a statement like that? It's said so often and I think it's a strong representation about how people have no fucking idea what they're talking about. But without getting too specific and like I've gotten specific with every different percent and median prices and average rentals and all that sort of stuff, but the interest on a mortgage is going to be more than the rent on that mortgage. So if let's just take this house, for instance, this house is worth maybe three and a half million dollars, maybe four. If we were to buy this house and say we were to be leveraged at 80%, and again, I don't want to get too specific for the audience. I'm going to try and keep it, you know, more, more a generic conversation, but the interest 
on the mortgage, so not paying down the actual mortgage, just paying the interest on it in this environment. And I haven't done the maths on this, but I know it would be somewhere around $160,000, $180,000. So, you know, maybe three and a half grand a week to pay the interest only on this house. So you're not paying down the mortgage, you're just paying the interest expense on the mortgage. And you can rent this house for $2,000 a week. So, I mean, that just... The, you're paying somebody else's mortgage is just, it doesn't actually make, you're not, you're not paying somebody else's mortgage. You're paying some of the interest on their mortgage, but you're definitely not paying their mortgage down. They're paying their mortgage down and they're paying interest on it. Uh, and not to mention, you know, when we rent this house, when uh, the basement pump breaks and somebody's got to spend $7,000 on fixing the basement pump. It's not us. Which has happened. Yeah. yeah. You know, we just pay our $2,000 a week in rent or when the electric curtains break or when the car turntable needs servicing or, you know, this is a nice house. It's expensive to maintain and every house has that, you know, costs them 3 to 5% a year or whatever, or sorry, 1% to 2% a year, whatever it might be to maintain the house. You know, this is probably the most expensive suburb in Melbourne to live. So when the rates come to keep the, you know, the trees clean and pick up the leaves at night and all that sort of shit, our landlord pays that. We don't have to pay that. We are paying, you know, costs us 104 grand a year to live in this house. If we were to be paying the interest expense, all the outgoings of the house, it would cost us 200 grand a year to live in this house. Not to pay it down, not to pay down the mortgage, just to keep the house. And we would have to have whatever it might be, six, seven, eight hundred thousand dollars of our cash in the house as equity as well. So there's an opportunity cost to that. I feel like a lot of people, um, you know, in the past when they think about investing in property, their mind goes straight to residential. Uh, and obviously for myself, I've recently decided that I wanted to go down the commercial path and that makes sense. But I remember being really interested to hear that I actually never knew, obviously I found this out through you being in the industry that you are, that obviously everyone knows with residential, like you just said, the landlord pays the rates if there are, you know, core appliances or things within the house that break and stuff like that, like the, um, you know, gas or the dishwasher or whatever it may be, then it's the landlord's responsibility to fix that. There's a lot of outgoings as the landlord to, you know, keep the property, you know, it working, functional, all things like that. However, with commercial, that's actually not the case. So with commercial property, it's actually up to the tenant to fix things, pay the rates and stuff like that as well. Besides that fact, what are some other reasons that you believe it's more, uh, I guess, financially viable or a better investment to be investing in commercial over the residential market? Yeah. And again, like you're asking me to talk about something I'm so passionate about without getting too caught up in the details, but there's a plethora of different commercial property types. So there's offices, there's warehouses, retail, there's service station, there's supermarkets, there's store. There's thousands of different ones. But as you mentioned, under commercial lease, the tenant pays the outgoings, the tenant pays for the maintenance. So as a landlord, when you collect your rent for the year, you then don't collect it and then have to pay for maintenance and have to pay for the rates or the body corporate or whatever it is. You know, under commercial lease, you collect the rent and you keep it. So it's a net rental outcome, which is, it makes things a lot more simple and you don't have unexpected costs and and stuff like that the returns are higher in commercial property than residential and people if you want to fight me in the comments no don't um but that that is a very blanket general statement but it is 100 percent true the lease terms are longer so uh under a residential lease you know 
12 months terms are the most common under a commercial lease you know less than three-year terms are very uncommon so when you get a tenant you they sign the lease and you know that you have the financial backing of that business for three years whereas every 12 months in a residential you're like oh is my tenant going to release am I going to have to find a new one do I have to market it how long is it going to sit vacant and stuff like that you know with it with a commercial the terms are longer and then the tenure is also longer because of that. So the average term for a residential property might be 12 months, but you might find that people generally stay for two and a half years because they release and then they release. Under a commercial, it's very similar. The average first term might be three years, but typically once a business is set up in the premises, they'll stay for, and it changes with the particular asset class, but they'll stay for, you know, six, seven, eight years at a time. So you're never, the property isn't vacant. You don't have to spend money advertising. You don't have to engage agents to release it. So um, I think that that's just a few of them. The fact that commercial properties are very commercial by nature, you don't have, generally you don't have the opportunity for somebody to, can shit on the floor or chew, chew the appliances or the cupboards and stuff like that. And, you know, the Residential Tenancy Act that uh, changed, I think, in 2019 or 20, might have been 2020, has made it a lot more difficult for landlords. And when somebody's living in your house, there's just an enormous opportunity for them to do damage to it, whether it's pets, whether it's children, whether it's smoking, whether it's a lack of just, you know, general cleanliness there's a lot of opportunity for your property to whether it's be damaged but just be devalued over time and not in terms of the entire asset value but just you know people trashing the place and and wear and tear whereas with a commercial property one the maintenance is covered by uh, the tenant but also just by the way they run business and people want to present where they're running business they don't want to trash it so um, yeah, there's another another thought there. This is super cool. So I, I feel like uh, the main things that I just wanted to even just lightly touch on that I knew a lot of people would get value from was one, entrepreneurship, two, your thoughts on, you know, not necessarily buying where you live, but instead renting. And then um, three, your thoughts on commercial versus residential. But now you're not off the hook yet. Oh, I thought you were wrapping up. <laughs> I, I I'm not. <laughs> Take my headset off. I, um, I opened up my Instagram to be able to potentially ask you some questions. Now, I already know there's too many in there for us to get to, but let's just play with some. I haven't picked these ahead of time, so I'm just going to go through and pick some and we'll just do a bit of rapid fire Q&A kind of vibe. A lot of people have asked about where you've got to where you are, which I'm actually going to turn that over to Leo and I might actually put the podcast you did with Leo um, in the show notes because there's a whole, I feel like you guys did a two hour podcast episode. Mm. Um, Also your Instagram story highlights, I believe is still there. It's very much got a, if you go to Oscar's Instagram, check out his highlights. It's really a very, very thorough, in-depth, I guess, detailed description of the beginning of his journey and how he got started, what that looked like. So I recommend you going to those sources first. Okay. How much money do you make and what does most of your income come from? Um, I'll answer the easier question first. Oh, actually, there is no there is no easier way to answer this. My day-to-day or week-to-week or month-to-month personal income comes from my construction company. So I have a commercial construction company that engages via contract to work for my development businesses and that company turns over somewhere between 15 and 20 mil a year 
and it doesn't run on big margins. The construction industry runs on very tight margins, so it makes maybe makes less than two million dollars a year in profit. But that's what my day to day lifestyle is funded by. Um, so that pays for our rent, pays for my cars, holidays, pays my living expenses. And then I have a development company. My development company turns this year will turn over maybe between 40 and 50 mil. Yeah, somewhere, somewhere around that. And with that, I don't take money from that in terms of like cash for living expenses or anything like that. I really just convert that into property um, and build a property portfolio with that. And then the third uh, company, oh, and I, I have a property portfolio, so I have revenue that comes in monthly from that, but really that just gets reinvested in business or properties, so I don't really take any funds from that. So all my day-to-day income comes from the construction company. And then obviously there's GUP, and GUP It's probably not my position to talk about that too publicly just yet because I don't know how the other part like with Leadland I can say whatever the fuck I want but with GUP there's obviously the boys are involved so I will feel out over the coming months how public they want to be with that but my ambitions for that is to be doing you know well into eight figures um, this year so across um, all the businesses that I'm involved in I don't know turnover 50 60 maybe somewhere, I don't know, 50 to more than 50 mil. That's all I know. Um, And in terms of profit, this will be my first eight-figure profit year. That's amazing. And how many properties do you currently own in your portfolio? So like you already know, I I buy and sell properties. I I don't hold properties too many long-term just because my business at the moment is development. So um, when I'm much older, I will, and I want to slow down, I will start putting more properties just into my personal portfolio and and keep them but yeah in terms of holding properties it's it's not many in terms of delivering properties so we will develop own and then sell most of a hundred and forty maybe 144 146 over the next two years yeah that's amazing so next one, what are your preferred investments, real estate, crypto, stocks, etc.? My preferred investments are commercial property. Do you have other types of investments or is all of your investment in commercial property? No, commercial property and business. That's pretty much. Yeah. Um, oh, I mean, I have some shares, like I have half a million in shares, but that's um, really just like ASX, ASX too. Oh, I have a couple of like smaller penny stocks that I've done well off but really my focus isn't in shares at the moment my focus is in commercial property and business so that's where uh, my investment focus is I own a few shares but nothing much you're not big on uh, crypto either are you not like a massive fan of using crypto as a investment opportunity no I don't have I don't own any crypto I don't know anybody who's doing well in crypto at the moment i two years ago everybody I knew was making a lot of money in crypto and that seemed to just be, you know, a rising tide lifts all boats. There was every time I opened up my phone or looked online, there was um, everybody I knew seemed to be an incredible crypto trader. But when the market turned, it seems like they all got um, washed out a little bit. But yeah, I'm not sure if the crypto market will come back and there'll be a lot of traders again, but I won't be one of them. Yeah. What's the biggest risk you've taken in business that truly scared you? They're, they've all been cash flow risks. Yeah, I think that's really what... 
Like losing money doesn't scare me, but having no money left at any one point, that scares me. So, yeah, I've taken some what have been cash flow risks that have scared me. There's been a couple over the years. My throat's drying up because of it. (laughs) Fucking hell. Um, Yeah, I'm sweating now. Yeah, I think cash flow risks. Running out of money, that's fucking petrifies me. And I've done it a couple of times and it's worked out. It's never not worked out. I've always like made it work out. But yeah, as a business owner, running out of cash is probably the most petrified thing. Like you can imagine somebody ringing up that needs money from you or is owed money from you and you can't pay it to them. Ugh, I could never. Yeah, I don't want to be in that position. Yeah, that's scary. Okay. Oh, and then the flexi. The flexi was the next biggest risk. Oh, yeah. Do you want to talk into that? Why Why did that feel like a risk for you? Because a lot of people may from the outside just be like, oh, that wasn't risky. It's a cool product. But for you, obviously, knowing the market and, and being so heavily involved, you know that it was a risk. Why did that feel like a risk for you? I think anytime you innovate, there's a risk. Yeah. And the flexi was like an entire innovation. So um, there's just at any point, it's like, are you going to be able to get a permit for this? Like, is the council going to support it? because they've never seen it before. So like, how, how are they going to view that? And then you overcome that. And then it's like, are you going to be able to sell these things? And is the market going to appreciate what you're doing? And so then you overcome that. And then it's like, is the bank going to give you money for it? And they're going to be like, what the fuck is a flex? Like, what are you using this money for? No, we don't want to support that. So every step, and then you start construction. And it's like, these methods haven't been used before. How much is it going to cost? Like, where's the opportunity for cost to blow out? Engineers, no, we've never done that before. We don't, yeah. Like, when you're innovating in any space, there's just so much opportunity for things to go wrong. So I think it increases risk. And Flexi was definitely big innovation. And there was there was risk every step of the way and some of them worked out like worked in our favor some of them caught us on the chin a bit ultimately the whole thing has been been a success which is cool but yeah i think any big innovation is risk and we're leaning into that with j up too you know we're taking we're innovating so many different facets with that product like one with the branding with the product with um, our sales strategy and when you are innovating to an extreme degree, well, in my personal experience anyway, you have these thoughts where you're like, fuck, maybe this can't be done. And when you're so committed to something and that thought pops into your head, it's like, like you're too far for it not to be able to be done. You know, like there was a moment in my mind with Flexi where I was like, fuck, have I fucked up this? And, and I was like, more than $10 million invested in something. And I was like, I don't know if I'm going to be able to finish this. You know, And I was being dramatic. And obviously, uh, we passed that and everything worked out great. But yeah, when you're right in the thick of something and that creeping thing of like, maybe this can't be done because there's no, when you're innovating, there's no forward thinking. You can't, like, you can't look ahead and be like, what did the other person do when they did this? Like, you're, you're leading. So um, you don't have that comfort and that's scary. Yeah, there is no other person. And yeah. like kind of the piece you said, you're already, it's just where you can hit yourself in this middle ground where it's like, I have nothing to look to, to be able to anchor into trust and safety that this is going to work out. Yet also, I know how much time, energy and money has already been spent to get to this point. And it's like, what's my next step going to be? And that can be really, really scary. And for anyone who doesn't know, what is Flexi? Flexi is, we describe it as cross between a like a Kennards or uh, any 
commercial storage unit and a WeWork. So essentially it's four walls, roller door, but finished with leadland finishes. So polished concrete floors, LED lighting, stuff like that. Five meter ceiling. So almost like a small warehouse slash commercial storage unit. And then uh, additional to that, it has car wash, co-working office, lounge area, delivery drop bay, rooftop terrace, uh, boardroom, bike parks and it's like the first step out of the garage for a small business so small space to store your staff and then communal office space to make use of. yeah so obviously you innovated this and when you did what was your perspective around why is someone buying this over a traditional warehouse it's a different user profile so a, a traditional warehouse more so now than ever because of the way the property prices have moved but their rent or purchase price to justify that cost, you need to be making use of the space for 24 hours a day. Five, well, not 24 hours a day, but whatever it might be, eight, 10 hours a day for five days a week. Whereas small businesses, when they want to venture out of the garage, they need a space, but they don't ne- necessarily need a boardroom that they're paying for 24 hours a day, seven days a week because it's theirs and they're paying for it whether they're using it or not. Or They don't necessarily need uh, office space, you know, first class office space, again, that they're using 24 hours a day, seven days a week or paying for 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So they get their space for their storage and their dispatch or whatever it might be. And then the boardroom, they can hire it for an hour a day and it's free and it's all included. But, you know, you can share that amenity amongst a lot more users and it becomes a lot more affordable. Yeah, cool. Such such a, an amazing innovation. Worst, Kate, this is... <laughs> You're going to make Oscar sweat. Okay, worst case scenario, banks crash, all your money is back to zero. What's your next move? Banks crashing wouldn't put all my money back to zero. If everything went back to zero, if I had to start from scratch again financially, nothing would really change for me. Like, I mean, obviously, I'd have to downsize my living expenses in the immediate term, but I don't think it would be for too long. And then... I would just kick off doing what I'm doing again, but I would just have to do it without my own money. So I would borrow money. And if that sounds unfathomable to you, then um, you should explore different ways of financial leverage. So there's a couple of people that have asked this and the ages are slightly different, but I'm just going to average it out. What advice would you give to your 18-year-old self? Care less what people think would be a good one. I mean, I would probably want like a bit of time to lead into that conversation if I was going to get that opportunity. Yeah. Like if 18-year-old Oscar just appeared on the couch, I'd be like, fuck, I don't know what to tell you. But um, yeah, I think care less what people think and just go hard. Okay. Do you have any money, business or investment regrets? Yeah. Heaps. What's one that stands out to you? I don't know how to say it by name without disclosing something that I shouldn't disclose, but also I don't know how to reference it to you without saying it by name. But there was there was an opportunity right when COVID first hit and property prices were collapsing and the world was going to end and I didn't believe that and I wanted to put my money where my mouth was and substantiate my claims that everything was going to be fine. So I approached some landowners who really wanted to sell their property because they wanted to put their money elsewhere, they were scared, whatever their reasons were, and I agreed to buy property for $9 million. And my regret was I wasn't sceptical enough and led my business with too much 
trust and I signed the deal up and paid a deposit on the contract that was available at the time. But what I should have done was be more thorough and forceful of a more binding contract. But essentially the property, I agreed to buy it for 9 million bucks, signed a contract, paid a deposit. And then uh, a few months later, the landowner said, nope, I don't want to sell it to you for that price anymore after I'd obviously signed a contract and paid a deposit. And I was like, what the fuck, you can't do that. And then I ended up not buying the property because I hadn't crossed my my eyes and or crossed my T's and dotted my I's and explored the legal process, spent about 250 grand on lawyers and ended up being like, fuck this, legal system shit, these guys are dirty, pulled out of the whole thing and a month later uh, they resold it for 18 million and they kept my deposit. So Another story for and, the book. And I spent 250 grand on legal. So yeah, it really cost me a lot of money. I should have made 9 million bucks, but in the end I, I learned a valuable lesson and, and um, lost some money, but I'm living there. Mm. I always say to people, I'm like, even just let's, I, I reference this in terms of uh, business mentors, but I think even it applies to having a board member, anyone that you're wanting to, I guess, get into business with. I always think I don't ever see the value in someone that's done well in business because every single thing worked perfectly for them and nothing's ever gone wrong and they've never actually had to learn or innovate amidst challenge or difficulty or things going wrong. I see value in mentors, in business partners, in, you know, if if I ever had a business where I was looking at a board member, it's like people that have had shit go wrong and how they handled those situations. So, a lot of money spent and things like that. But I believe that as a businessman, it's made you so much more wise and, and valuable in the businesses that you've been a part of in how you handled and navigated that situation as well. Yeah, I mean, the immediate following of that situation was um, the flexi innovation yep. off the back of like, we don't have the opportunity to develop this land that we thought was coming. So how can we create further revenue? And that was, um, we'll, we'll build a basement, we'll fill full flexi units. I think this is so cool, even that it's something that someone just listening could just very much just glaze over that little part, but it's actually seeing that and where that actually happens. So for you, you had a situation where you felt like you lost out on it, but you weren't so focused on losing out and and what you'd potentially lost or the opportunity you didn't get. You focused on, okay, now that I don't have that opportunity, how can I leverage other opportunities? So for listeners, what that looked like for you was you didn't get a second block of land you thought you were going to get. So you then had to go back to the block of land you already did have and go, how can this be? more profitable how can we create this to be bigger and better and things like that and again as you said that meant to building underground and going and building a basement that you hadn't accounted for and creating the flexi which was incredibly innovative yeah and it sounds amazing and that's a nice little soundbite but it didn't happen as smoothly as that you know i didn't go oh fuck that that shit they're fucking me over and um ripping up the contract, I'll just go make this thing. It was, you know, 12 months of like, why are they doing this to me? Fuck, I'm so dumb. How can I see this coming? I shouldn't have trusted this person. You know, how c- there was a lot of stress and heartache through it. But I think now looking back, it's like there was a lot of gain that come from it too. Cool. All right, let's do one more. Where is best to invest? Well, I feel like 
small amount is very open to interpretation. So you can answer this whichever, Mm -hmm. what way you want. But where is the best to invest a small amount of money for a good return? Well, this is could be answered in so many different ways, but I'm going to mix it with the last question that you didn't actually ask. I think if you have less than one to two hundred thousand dollars to invest, you should only be investing in yourself. I think that's where you're going to get the highest return. I think like we and I did the same thing when I was first coming up was like. You know, I'd make five thousand dollars be on the internet googling like what can I invest five thousand dollars in to get rich, but I think we don't talk about it enough. And the best return on money you will get, especially in those early days when it's smaller amounts of money, is on self education. And like, it doesn't just have to be education in terms of like financial or investment or um, career development or anything like that. It can be mindset. It can be health. Um, it can be like removing limiting beliefs and dealing with different, you know, childhood traumas and stuff like that. But I think any successful person will tell you the same, that in- investing in themselves has has paid the highest dividends. And of, of course there are anomalies or exceptions to the rule, but I think in general, like the most admirable people in my circle have invested heavily in themselves along the way and that's where they've seen the most benefit. So if you haven't got enough money to be investing two, three, four hundred thousand dollars in property or the share market or private equity into a business partnership with somebody, whatever it might be, I would be looking at how can I invest in myself that will fast track me quicker to having chunks of money in you know the, the six-figure mark that I can invest in? So mentorship, supplementation, you know, diet, exercise regimes, you know, mindset work, see a counselor, meditation. Like there's a thousand different ways that you can perform higher. And if you're in a position where higher performance equals, you know, greater income which I think is anybody like anybody who's employed in the private sector and and probably even the public sector the more output you have the more income you're going to have so I would definitely focus on improving my ability to generate income great answer I love all of that thank you Oscar for thank you spending your time on a Sunday with me and coming back on the show and providing all of the listeners with a bit of added value thank you for having me 